0: The story of the prodigal father and the two lost sons, prodigal meaning just extravagant, and just he was extravagant in the fact that that he gave away the inheritance to us before he was dead. I mean what, what person in the right mind would do that, and then he was extravagant in the way that he received the son back. The son squandered everything, and then came back and, and he welcomed him, restored his rights as a son, and, and embraced him, held him and uh, it 's an amazing story, and it 's this story that tells us the path of return to God. That that is the path. And it's been marked out by Jesus for us. And it, it starts out uh, like in uh, verse uh, 17, uh, the, in the story that Jesus tells where he's in the pigsty. And he's going, man, what am I doing here? This whole realization that, that man, I've, I've made a mess of my life. And in that realization going, but I have a father... Who, who loves and would take care of me and, and instead of this harsh master that won't even let me eat what the pigs eat. And so there's realization. And then there's this resolution going, if that's my father, and this is where I'm at now, I'm going to head back to my father. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go back. And then there's this whole repentant heart that we get a picture of. And this this younger son saying in his heart as he's getting, pulling himself up out of the pigsty, he's saying, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my father that I just want to be a hired servant. I'm no longer worthy to be his son. I'll, I'll tell him, I, I've him I've sinned against him. and I've sinned against God. And he starts rehearsing his speech. And then he makes his return. And as he's returning back home, he's rehearsing the lines in his head. But when he comes up to the house, it's not like he pictured it. See, his father uh, does an extravagant thing again. He, he, you, know, you can just picture an old man in robes back in that day, you know pulling up his robes and then just hiking him up and then just sprinting down the road. I mean, it wasn't a very dignified thing for a man to do, an uh, older man to do, but he did it anyway because he loved his son and he'd been watching for him and he saw him in the distance and he ran and embraced him, kissed him, and, uh, and the son's starting to rehearse his lines of saying, I'm sorry, dad, forgive me. And, and he says, I have none of that. Um, none of that. And then there's this whole reconciliation that happens. And, and the father, he takes uh, says, get a, get a robe, put it on him, get a ring, get shoes, which are all signs of sonship. And he restores him as a son. He says, no, none of this coming back as a servant thing. You're my son. You were once dead, but now you are alive. And I'm, I'm the one who's making you alive in this family again. And he brings him back. So you see this res- uh Realization, resolution, repentance, return, reconciliation, this reclothing by the Father. And then there's rejoicing. There's a party. And if you look in Luke 15 with the story of the prodigal father and the two lost sons, there's also a story of two other lost things. There's a story of a lost sheep and there's a story of a lost coin. It's so interesting that at the end of each of those stories, there's a party. There's rejoicing over someone who comes back to God, who returns to the Father and it's interesting because uh, the first one's about a lost coin. A coin is inanimate. Doesn't have thoughts, can't think. Doesn't know when it's lost. So it can't do anything about it. it doesn't even know its own condition. Isn't that the condition that some of us were in at one, uh, one time? We didn't even know we were lost. We didn't even know that we were far from the Father and that we needed Him. That our condition was was uh, desperate and dire. And then there's the, there's the story of the sheep that's lost. The sheep it does does have some sort of uh, mind and, and knows when it's lost, but the sheep couldn't do anything to get out of its lost condition. And the shepherd had to go after it. What couldn't some of us say that that's our story. We were lost and we just didn't know how to get back to the father. And somehow the father found us and we could sing that song. You found me. And then there's the story of the lost son who knew exactly his condition and he knew how to get back to the father and the father didn't go chasing after him. But he waited for him, and he was ready to receive him. And some of us could say, "That's my story. That's that's my story. I knew exactly what I was doing, and I I knew how to get back to the Father." Well, you see, that story and the story, especially of the younger son, is 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 a picture of the path of return to the Father, and it's a it's a it's a path of return that we can follow today. Those steps. The path of return to the Father is a plan that God took great delight in making. Great delight in making with the thought of adopting you into his family, bringing you into his family, restoring you as a son and daughter in his family. And that's what he still desires today. And it's a plan that he had since the foundations of the world, and he's had you in mind and had his eye on you, had designs on you for glorious things from before you ever had a thought of him before you ever had a thought. And this, this path that was laid down by Jesus was a costly path. It was a sacrificial path. It was the path of the cross. And here at Highland, we, got, we take some time on Palm Sunday to go to the cross. Because on Resurrection Sunday, there's so much to the story of the resurrection. We, 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 we take two Sundays to tell the whole story. Because both, both parts of the story, is just so big. And we've got to tell you about the cross. And so today, I just want to recount the steps of Jesus and the story to the cross. And I'd like you to go there with me and follow those steps. A return to the cross is a return to the Father. So right now, before I, I begin telling this story, and you see the scriptures up on the screen, I'd just like us to pray. Because I, I want to tell you that there's power in this story that can change the story of our lives. That's what I want to pray it does for people here today. For those of us who are familiar with the story and have been been Christ followers for a long time, I I pray that this will be a moment of refreshment, a moment of of restoring, a moment of rejoicing in what God has already done for you. But Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to be still just for a moment before you and reflect on your story, what you did going to the cross. In the next few moments, Lord, let your story, the gospel story, speak to us. Lord, I I pray that you'll do things that I can't do with human words in these next few moments. I pray that you'll do things that that only you can do by your spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this Sunday is called Palm Sunday, and, and Sue explained to you earlier the reason for that. And if we were following... Jesus' steps, it would lead us to Jerusalem, where those laying down of the palms occurred. You see, Jesus' popularity was an all-time high, and it was because he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. He had just recently fed 4,000 people and then 5,000 people, and so the crowds were coming after him. And many of the Jewish people uh, had put their faith in Jesus because of what he'd done to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And so there's many people of these Jewish people that that had hopes that he was the Messiah and that soon political liberation and the occupation of Rome in their land was going to end. And so they were excited and they were ready. And when usually when popular leaders came to Jerusalem, it was kind of a statement of saying, I'm taking control I am taking my kingship and I'm going to exert my authority and uh, I'm going to start my rule. So it's interesting when Jesus uh, came uh, at this time because at the same time, the Jewish leaders, uh, their jealousy and their animosity towards Jesus was also at a peak. And they had had a plot hatched to kill Jesus. Now recently, they decided to include Lazarus in on that because so many people were believing because Lazarus was alive. Now we don't get the end of that story. We don't know if Lazarus was assassinated or not. But we know that uh, in the scriptures it does say that there was a plot, not only for Jesus, but for Lazarus. And that plot had finally found an entry point. They found a weak spot, and it was Judas. And Judas had come to the Jewish leaders and said he would be willing to, to betray Jesus. And it was going to happen in this week. This week between this Sunday and next Sunday. And at, So during this time, Jesus, knowing all this, knowing that Judas had already arranged his betrayal, knowing what the Jewish leaders had had been plotting, knowing what the people were thinking, Jesus knew what he was doing as he set his face resolutely and marched towards Jerusalem, knowing that he had to do the key thing to his mission here on earth, and that was to die on the cross. That's what he came to do, even though nobody else quite understood that. He knew. It wasn't a tragedy. You know, in Shakespearean uh, plays... You know, they call the ones where everyone dies at the end, they call it a tragedy because they, he, he does this web of uh, uh, things that seem accidental and ironic. And, and sometimes people want to say the death of Jesus is a tragedy, but it's not a tragedy because there's nothing accidental about it. It's because it was a plan from the very beginning from God, the father, God, the son, and God, the spirit. And Jesus, the son was just honoring the father by carrying out this plan. So, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, and it was on a Sunday long ago, like this, 2,000 years ago, that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding not on a horse, which was a sign of a prince coming and, to make war, like you said, exert his authority as king. Instead, Jesus came riding on a donkey, which at that time was a sign of a prince who was going out in peace. So Jesus came into Jerusalem saying they came in peace and people heard of his coming and they lined up on either side of that switchback road going up to Jerusalem and they laid down uh, these signs of respect towards him, these signs of of directing honor towards him and it was laying down their coats on the road and if they didn't have coats they tried to find these palm branches that were nearby and they laid them down on the road as Jesus came into town. And as they did this, people started crying out and giving praises to Jesus, praises that were equal to to worship. And some of the Jewish leaders that were kind of watching what was going on, they're saying, Jesus, why don't you shut up your disciples? Because, I mean, they're saying things that are a little, little out there. And Jesus said, if I shut them up, then the rocks will have to cry out. Sorry, folks. Sorry, folks. Won't do it. And he let the praise continue. And but it's interesting, at that moment, while the city was crying out Jesus' name, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Savior, save us, they didn't even know what they were saying. But as they cried out, and it was kind of equal to a, a concert or a parade that maybe we would go to today, but as they cried out, the only one who knew what would be happening five days later was Jesus. And five days after that moment of triumph, Jesus was going to be hanging on a cross between two criminals. Two criminals. Dying for the sins of the world on a Friday, a Friday that became called Good Friday because it was for our good, for our saving, that he died. Then on Sunday, Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, not only breaking out of the tomb, but breaking the power of death, sin, and guilt in one single stroke of victory, sharing that victory with those who trust in him. Triumph over death. Sin and guilt. And these events, these events that I just shared with you, make up a week called the Holy Week or the Passion Week because it's where God demonstrates his holy passion for us. And it's a passion that also says, I love you so much that I'm going to come against anything that tries to destroy you. And you know what's been trying to destroy us from the beginning? Sin and the power of the enemy, the devil. And Jesus said, I'm coming against that. It's trying to destroy you. So I'm going to come against that sin. And I'll do whatever it takes to come against it. And he carried out the Father's plan of being the one who had no sin but taking on the sin of the world to destroy it. And these events that demonstrate Christ's love to us are the events that we remember this week and Christians have been remembering over the past 2,000 years. This thing that we call Holy Week. And it's in these events that the redemption of mankind was carried out. Events that changed history forever, forever. Now, it was Thursday night, it was Thursday night that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples and this meal that he shared with them. And he wrapped a a towel around himself and he went to each of his disciples and he washed their feet. And he did this saying, "I, I want you to do as I do. I'm your master. You call me that, and that's true. And if you call me master, then do what I do. Serve. Serve others. And then after praying with them, and that prayer being recorded in John 15, 16, and 17, they went out from that place, out of the city, outside the city walls, and went to a garden across a small valley near an olive grove. And it was there on Thursday night or, or in the wee hours of Friday morning that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. It was at that moment his disciples fled. Even Peter who said, Lord, everyone may desert you, but I will never desert you. What did Jesus say? "For the cock crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. Well, Peter made an attempt, swung a sword at one of the guards trying to arrest him. Uh, didn't, didn't wasn't too true with his stroke, just got an ear chopped off on somebody. Jesus slapped it back on and it was healed. And <coughs> And went on. And, and again, he said, Put away your swords. See, this wasn't a time of rescue. This was a time he had to fulfill his mission. He had to go to the cross. And so all his disciples fr- fled. And then he was taken to the chief priest's house that night. I mean, like one or two in the morning. because and, and all the religious leaders had gathered there waiting to hold this little kangaroo court against Jesus. Because they knew if they tried to do it in the daytime, that the people, would there would be an uprising and they would be ousted from their positions as leaders because everyone revered Jesus as, as the Messiah. But so in this little kangaroo court in the middle of the morning, they, they bring these charges against Jesus. They try to accuse him of things uh, that had to do with what he said and what he did. Things like he said, I'll raise up this, uh, I'll, I'll tear down this temple and, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they tried to bring some witnesses uh, to say that was, that was a bad thing. And then, and then they tried to accuse him of things that he did, like, like healing a, a man with his shriveled hand on a Sabbath day. That's work. You shouldn't be doing work, like healing somebody. And, but they couldn't get two witnesses to even agree with one another, to bring those charges. And they, they threw their accusations at him, and Jesus just remained silent. He didn't say a thing. And then finally, they asked one question. And the one question he answered was this. Are you the Son of God, the Messiah? And what did Jesus say? He said, yes, it is as you say. I'm him. And you know, it was right then and there that they sentenced him. And they carried out their plot to kill him. And that was what they they hung it on. This is what we're killing you for, Jesus. We're killing you not because of the good things you taught. We're not killing you because of the good things you did. We're killing you because of who you said you were. You said you were the son of God. And in their ears, and in our ears today, what he was saying was that he was God. And because he said he was God, they were going to kill him. So right then and there, they began to beat him with their fists and slap him and mock him and say things as he was blindfolded and said, who hit you? Then they got tired of it, and they knew that they couldn't carry out an execution themselves, so they had to take him to Pilate. Because the Roman authorities had, were the only ones who had the power to execute somebody. So they took him to Pilate and brought their charges. And Pilate listens to all this. And, and uh, he can't find anything wrong, according to Roman law, to execute a man. And so, uh, but the Jewish leaders keep putting pressure on him. And then he tries to re- release him through a, a, a Jewish uh, Passover tradition. And it was kind of a thing that he did to please and gain favor with some of the Jewish leaders and the locals in the land. He said, hey, I'll release a prisoner on Passover. And uh, he said, uh, who, who, would, who do you want? Well, the scriptures say that uh, the, the chief priests and the, and the religious leaders stirred up the crowd to uh, get them to shout out Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who had just led an insure- uh, insurrection, a rebellion against uh, the Romans, and had murdered somebody. And so all the people shouted out, Barabbas, Barabbas, set him free. And then Pilate was like confused. And he said, well, what am I to do with Jesus? And all the people shouted at once, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate washed his hands, gave into the crowd, sent Jesus away to be flogged and crucified. And at this point, the Roman soldiers took charge of Jesus. They took him down to the praetorium, a part in the, in the palace of the governor there, of the Roman governor in Jerusalem. And then they stripped him, and then they tied him up to a pole, and then they lashed him 39 times. If his flesh wore out one side, they flipped him around and started on the other side. Most people passed out, went unconscious from the pain of this as their flesh was ripped from their bodies. And then after that, they... Uh, untied him and they threw a a robe a scarlet robe around him that they had found and then they wove a a crown made out of thorns and placed it on his head and they put a staff in his hands and then the roman soldiers went up to him and they they bowed down in mockery and said oh hail jesus king of the jews and they spit in his face and then after that they took the staff and they the scriptures say that they beat him on the head again and again that crown of thorns sitting there and jesus said nothing And then sometime before noon, they led him away to be crucified. Jesus carrying the very beam of wood that he was going to be nailed to and hung upon. They came to a place just outside the city walls, just a a place of, of high rocks. And they called it Golgotha. And they set up there as a place where they execute criminals. And there were two others there that were na- nailed to a cross on either side of Jesus. And it was there that Jesus' hands and feet were pierced with nails into wood. And then he was raised up and hung there on a cross for all to see as they passed by on the city road going into, the, into Jerusalem. And this was the most torturous form of execution devised by Romans. And it wasn't just the slow loss of blood that killed you. It was actually asphyxiation because as you hung from the cross... And, and your arms back and your shoulders out of joint you couldn't breathe as you hung there and so the only way you could breathe was to push up with your feet and to pull with your hands to gasp for some air and of course that was ripping at the flesh in your hands and your feet so then you you released yourself to relieve yourself of the pain but then you couldn't breathe again and so then you had to pull yourself up again to gasp for air And so there Jesus hung gasping for breath his blood pouring out dying and while Jesus hung on the cross, there were just a few words that he spoke. One of them being, as he looked at the Roman soldiers as they gambled for his seamless piece of clothing there at the foot of the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then his words to the only person who had faith in him at that moment, a criminal who was dying right next to him, criminal who said, spoke up for Jesus and said, Jesus, would you remember me when you enter your kingdom? Guess what Jesus said to him? He said, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Great words, great words. And while dying, Jesus looked to the care of his mother and looked to his mother and the only male disciple that was there at the foot of the cross, John. And he looked at John and said, John, here's your mother. And then to his mother... Mother, here's your son. From that day on, John looked after Jesus' mother, Mary. And then from noon till 3 p.m., darkness came on the land. The sun was hidden. Nobody, it was just dark like it was nighttime. There's many theologians that believe that this is the exact moment when, when substitution occurred. When the, when the man, the man God who had no sin became sin for us, and it was all placed on him. All the sins of the world from the past to present were laid upon him, and darkness covered the land. And Jesus cried out at that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus, knowing that he completed everything that he was sent to do, he then asked for a drink. They took a sponge and dipped it in some wine, stuck it on a stick and gave it to him on the cross. And then knowing everything was done, he said these words, It is finished. And then the scriptures say that he bowed his head and breathed his last from the cross. And at that moment, on the other side of the city, in the temple, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, the temple curtain was very high, so there was no man that ripped it. What the scripture is saying is that God ripped it in two. And at the foot of the cross, the centurion who had overseen the crucifixion and and, and Jesus' hands being nailed to that cross stood there and looked up at Jesus and said, surely this man must have been the son of God. What strange words to say at that moment. And then sometime after 3 p.m., Jesus' side was pierced with the sword. They were just making sure that he was dead. They went and broke the legs of the other two on either side of him so that they couldn't push themselves up anymore and that they would die quickly because Sabbath day was coming and and the Jews didn't want dead people hanging on Sabbath day. And so they went to Jesus and found he was already dead, so they took a sword, and pierced his side, and the scriptures say that water and blood flowed out. Meaning really it was it was it was blood and plasma that his the blood was already, the blood cells were already starting to separate because he had been dead for a, a few for a time. And then at that moment, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came, and they took down Jesus' body from the cross. They wrapped his body in linen strips and packed it with 75 pounds of spices. And it was getting close to 6 p.m., the start of the Jewish Sabbath, and so they had to do something quick. So they, they, they took him to a garden tomb that was right near that, that high point of rocks called Golgotha, and they laid him in the tomb there, and they rolled a heavy stone in front of it and went away. The next morning, Saturday, by request of the Jewish leaders and the command of Pilate, that tomb was sealed, and Roman guards were posted there. And that is the account of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. And this Friday, when your heart and mind are fixed upon the passion of Jesus Christ and what he did for you there on the cross, you know what the rest of the world is going to be doing? They're just going to be going on with their day. They aren't going to give a second thought. They're just going to be going on as if nothing has ever happened. At school, when you show up there, students, it's going to be the same talk at the lunch table, same talk as you're going down the hallways. At work, it's going to be business as usual on Friday. You go into your neighborhood, there's going to be people out working in their yards, enjoying the warmer weather, getting things ready for spring and summer. Not even thinking, not even having a clue what day it is. And you'll be faced with the culture shock of a world that won't stop and recognize the great sacrificial love of our God demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. You know what? I hope that there's something in you that wells up in you in those moments, that wants those, that, 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 some sort of desire in you that says, I want people to know. I want people to know this story that changes the story of our lives. What would it be like if if the outcast at the lunch table at school heard the words, Today you will be with me in paradise? What does that mean to the outcast? What would it mean if the cynic at work heard the words, Surely this must have been the Son of God? All these circumstances, all these events around his death, surely he was the Son of God. And then to those oblivious in your neighborhood, what. What would it do to hear the words of Jesus to them in their lives? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. How many people need to hear those words and know that they're from God? We all need to know these events. We all need to hear these words. And we all need to return to the cross. Every one of us. Those of us who have felt loneliness. Those of us who have been confused. Those of us who have been wrapped up in meaningless busyness of our lives. Those of us who have can't seem to remove the burden of guilt off our shoulders. We need to come to the cross and hear Jesus say, it is finished. The guilt, the confusion, the loneliness, the busyness, put it into it right now. In the days of Jesus, it is finished was a Hebrew and Aramaic phrase that was stamped upon official documents to say that all debts had been paid. It is finished. We are no longer enslaved to sin or bound by guilt. No more loneliness. No more confusion. Release. Freedom. That is what is offered to those who put their trust in Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. If we return to the cross and trust in what Jesus did for us there, we're in new standing with God. A new spiritual position. We're no longer dead to sin but made alive to Christ. Made alive to God. And it took this, the cross to accomplish it. The passion of Jesus poured out to put us in new standing with the Father. New standing as friends of Jesus. And that's what he called his followers. Friends. He said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends because I've let you know everything that the Father has revealed to me. I know sometimes that you hear people say, Jesus is my friend. But I'd like you just to reverse that in your head just for a moment. Reverse it and think, what does it mean when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror at one of Jesus' friends? You're not an acquaintance of Jesus. You're not a slave. You're not a spectator in his life story. You are his friend if you put, his, put your trust in him in the cross. If you call yourself a Christian, which means little Christ, or if you call yourselves a Christ follower, you are a friend of Jesus. And what does a friend of Jesus do? A friend of Jesus follows their friend and where he goes. For you and for me, it's for us to go into each day, undertaking each task, to meet each person, to write each report, to teach each class, to tend each patient, knowing that as we do, that we're all defined as Jesus' friends. We are not Jesus' friends fans or his fan club we are his friends and to follow him might require something of us might require something of us it is finished look it is finished means that we are his forgiven friends as it says in John 13:1 of his followers he loved them to the end he's going to love us to the end he's going to walk with us whatever we have to walk through he paid the price, dealt with the weight of sin, defeated the dark powers that held us captive. The cross achieved it. And when we return to the cross, it is finished, is spoken over us. It's spoken over our mess. It's spoken over our guilt. The only person the only person to hang on to guilt and failure is, is the person who wants to stop being friends with Jesus. If you are a friend of Jesus, you are a forgiven friend. You know, it is finished means that we are also his suffering friends. If we're to follow him in his steps, the steps lead to the cross. I know that everything in our success-driven world flies in the face of that. Our culture rebels against that thought of suffering or doing things that might be hard. The truth is that some of us are in love with the world and we expect the world to reward us for that devotion. Jesus wants you to give up your love for the world and to give all allegiance to him. Reality is that often we live in places of pain and some of it sticks to us. Some of it is, some of all the suffering in the world, some of it becomes our own. You know, but just as Jesus was the wounded healer, by His wounds we are healed. The same is true for those of those he indwells, that, that we, though we're wounded by the world, we are the wounded who are the real healers. We can bring the news of His love to places where the world is still in pain. For some, Good Friday is also every Friday. You know, in Sudan, the friends of Jesus have been enslaved. Some of them have even been crucified in mockery of their faith. In Iran, the friends of Jesus are assassinated. In Cuba, they're imprisoned. In China and North Korea, the friends of Jesus are beaten to death. It's not wild rumors. It's all documented and detailed, and it's happening up to this very day. So if our suffering... Our suffering right here in this, this place in this time is more local, personal, and often the invisible kind of suffering, you know, we should remind ourselves that really we, we belong to a suffering family, and it isn't some sort of unfortunate accident or a glitch in the system caused by our own sin or folly when we suffer. It's part of just being Jesus' suffering friends. Sometimes we're going to go through some tough, some tough things. We are called to be a suffering friends people, who in our lives the message of God's suffering yet all conquering love resonates to the world around us. When we return to the cross and believe the words, "It is finished," we can know the one who has called us friends is leading us along the same path that He walked. And he's close by us to give us strength and comfort in our times of need. You know, it is finished also means that we are his commissioned friends. We are called to take up the cross and follow Jesus and be a part of his kingdom work, defeating evil until the day Jesus is visibly enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. But this commission to spread the reign of Jesus over the hearts of mankind, it isn't like some sort of military operation, and it's not carried out by force. Instead, you see, Jesus' good Friday victory was a victory of suffering love. And as his commissioned friends, we can only tell that news as he did, with sacrificial love. When you look in the mirror, do you see someone who is the friend of Jesus? Right now, I'd like Nate and the band to come up, and we're going to continue in some worship We're going to continue some time of of going to the cross through communion and reflecting what Jesus did for us there. It's a special meeting with him. But as you do this, I, I want you to think, are you ready to approach every task and every conversation as his friend, forgiven, suffering, and commission? Is his story, which can change the story of others' lives, is it on the tip of your tongue? You have great opportunities this week to invite others to observe the story of his life, and death, and resurrection, and, and do it in a very delightful way. I mean, uh, Godspell. I mean, it's even kind of fun to see his story. And there'll be times and moments where you can even laugh and even cry. Man, just make the most of that opportunity. Make the most of that opportunity. I know that maybe there's some of you here that are just trying to figure out, well, how do I become a friend of Jesus? How do I do that? Well, I think if you're asking that question, then maybe you're already finding yourself on the path of the lost son. You're already on the return. You're already there believing and realizing where you've been and where you want to be. You're already running towards the father's arms. And I want you to know that he's standing there at the end of the road. He's ready to welcome you and embrace you, embrace you into his family. Just keep moving towards him because he's running towards you. And your noble brother, Jesus, is delighted and ready to help reconcile things between you and the Father. Paying your debt that you owe from all your crazy past and the crazy things that you've done to pay that debt you owe from life that you've squandered. He's ready to speak, it is finished over you. And the Father and Son want to wash you clean. Wash you clean of your past to reclothe you and bring you into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved Son. That's what he wants to do. For those of us who are already there at the celebration enjoying it, It's time to rejoice and it's time to invite others in. You know, this thing that we call the the body of Christ and this this celebration that we brought into with Him. It isn't like we're in a huddle with all our arms around like this so that nobody else can get in. We got one hand in the celebration and we got one hand extending out, welcoming anyone else to come in. It's an open invitation. So, in the next few moments, there's going to be a song that's played, there's going to be some people around the perimeter of this room. Holding a goblet of juice represents Christ's blood, a plate with unleavened bread that represents his body. Take that unleavened bread, dip it in the juice. Remember that Christ and what he did, the sacrifice on the cross was for your sin. And it's also a time not just to mourn over maybe the sin in your life that Jesus had to suffer for, but it's also a time to rejoice and to say, thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you've done to bring me into your family. So It's both. It's a time to reflect, maybe time of repentance, time of mourning, but it's also a time of rejoicing. So as you do, I just want you to know that that, uh, you can come anytime. You don't have to be a member of this church to participate in this. You just have to be someone who believes that what happened here at the cross was for you. So we invite you to join us. Also, if you're someone who's just needing prayer, maybe you're on that path of return and you just need some encouragement, I'm going to be right down here. I'll be ready to pray with you. And if you're someone who just needs to express yourself more in worship, and you just want to do that by kneeling, or you want to come down here to the front, but you just want to be between you and God, you don't want anyone to interrupt, you just come down right here, all right? All right, Heavenly Father, in these next few moments, meet us in this special meeting of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.